Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I am interviewing uh, Becky Labar from the Renfrew uh, Museum and Park. So Becky, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. So um, I'm currently here in South Central Pennsylvania, um, working in Waynesboro, but I'm from the Midwest, originally from the Metro Detroit area. And um, where I grew up just outside of um, Detroit, every school kid went to Greenfield Village, which was an outdoor um, open air museum founded by Henry Ford in 1929. So I went there on school field trips. That was sort of my first introduction to historic preservation by relocation. Um, there's, you know, all the buildings have been moved in on site. Yeah. So I, I didn't know as a little kid, that's, you know, what it was, but um, very familiar with historic buildings, spent a lot of time there and had always wanted to, when I grew up, work there someday. And so I had that opportunity um, when I was an undergrad. So I went through school, um, decided to go for undergrad in interior design. I didn't know that historic preservation was a field that uh, was available or even thought or was encouraged towards museum work. I kind of found that out as a young adult. So um, as a freshman, I had just completed my freshman year in college and my mom saw an ad in the newspaper that they were uh, interviewing for historic presenters at Greenfield Village. So that was how I got my first museum job. And it set me on a path uh, towards this type of career with living history interpretation and historic architecture. And I did that seasonally for five years, uh, fell in love with it. When I was a senior in undergrad, um, I had a wonderful art history professor, Jeff Ball, who uh, really encouraged my love of historic architecture and did a independent study with me and another student in my interior design class um, about introduction to historic preservation. So that's when I, that's when I really learned that this was a field that I could consider. Right. And um, a couple of you know chance happenings, I interned with an architecture firm um, my last year of undergrad. And I tried for a job and lost to a girl who had a couple years more experience than me. And my backup plan was to go to grad school. And I was trying to figure out, you know, where I was going to go. And the architects in the office were like, Becky, you have an opportunity to go study in Chicago. You should do it. I had mm -hmm. applied to the School of the Art Institute in downtown Chicago. And so um, I was considering a couple different places, um, one in Michigan near where I grew up, uh, one in Muncie, Indiana, Ball State, and then School there Institute. And so with their encouragement and um, kind of wanting to try something new, I went off to Chicago and um, fresh out of school, didn't have a job, uh, cold <laughs> fall, 
yeah. all of the design and architecture firms in the city that I could get phone numbers for yeah. just down the list. And there was one person who called me back and took me on as a part-time designer. And so that's kind of how I got into the field professionally. Um, did my undergrad. And then um, I started, while I was working, I started interning, well, well not interning, volunteering at uh, Glessner House Museum in Chicago. Mm, yeah. And so that's a Henry Hobson Richardson a mansion that's located in the South Loop. And I worked with the curatorial assistant there and, and the um, executive director and curator. And eventually because of that volunteer experience, I was able to uh, interview for a job that came up there as a, um, it, it was a contract job with the city of Chicago. So all this was happening during the recession. Um, oh, yeah. my, the architect that I worked for, um, he laid me off in early 2009 and I was, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I spent all that year looking for another job and I was volunteering at Glessner House. Mm -hmm. And so the city of Chicago had um, come to a, a professional services agreement with Glessner House Museum for somebody who was going to manage Clark House Museum, which was an 1836 Greek revival, the oldest surviving house in the original Chicago city limits oh, yeah. and pay Glessner House to have that professional do the work. And then Glessner House would get that other half mm -hmm. of that person's hours. Yes. So I interviewed, um, I was one of almost a hundred people that interviewed for oh, this I'm job sure. yeah. during the recession. Everybody was looking for work. Um, I was told that there were people even from abroad that were applying for this job. And um, I think a, a lot of it, because I had been volunteering there and the executive director knew me, right. um, that, that helped a lot with mm -hmm. me coming kind of to the top of the, the heap there. And then they did offer me that job um, at the, I think it was at the end of 2009. I started, maybe it was 2010. Um, but started there. And that set me on the path to my experience with house museums. So that's kind of my world as historic house museums, yeah. um, mid 19th century. Uh, Glessner House, of course, was a late 19th century Richardsonian Romanesque, but my love is that pre-Civil War time period. And so working at Clark House was a dream. Um, oh, yeah. I was basically acting as their director. That wasn't my title. My title was curator, right. um, but I did everything from um, managing their tour program, any of their um, educational programs, and and the, the house was owned by the city of Chicago, but the collection was owned by the Illinois Colonial Dames. So that started me with a multifaceted right. um, yeah. approach to municipal, public-private preservation, and so there was a lot that went into that. So that right. was really a wonderful education in um, that type of work with with partners across across yeah, you, have, the you have multiple multiple stakeholders that everybody has a stake in it and you have to keep everybody happy but everybody might have different ideas yeah I, and I noticed when I was doing my research that you deal with that now too with diff there's different people involved with with the Renfrew uh, museum. So that's really interesting. I have you ever been to the? Um, I think it's the Edison Ford Museum in Florida. In it's in Fort Myers. I, no, I, I haven't made that, but Menlo Park Laboratory was brought up from there too. Was it okay? Okay. Yeah, but I haven't yeah. made it down to Florida. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was. It was really. Um, I I was down for a marketing conference, and I um, I had like one day that I was there by myself. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go do this, and it was. I had a good time, so I I recommend it. <laughs> I bet it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. But it's more like early early 20th century buildings, but very 
tropical, tropical mm-hmm. feeling. They, they were busy trying to figure out how to not have to import uh, rubber. <laughs> that right. was their whole reason for being there. <laughs> exactly. So tell, yeah, so tell me about uh, the Renfrew Museum and, and uh, Park. Sure. So I got here just about 18 months ago, um, took on this position after spending two and a half years as the director of historic preservation and planning for Gettysburg Borough. So okay. Renfrew Museum and Park is about 20 miles from Gettysburg and we're a 107 acre uh, outdoor uh, facility. We were um, originally a, a historic farmstead, Pennsylvania German family. Um, most of the extant buildings that are here date from the period that Daniel Royer owned the property. Um, so our, our mission here is to interpret the history of the Royer family, um, the farmstead itself, and then um, Emma Nicodemus, who was the last resident here on the property who willed her, her land and all of the assets to the borough of Waynesboro in 1973 when she passed away. So it's a really interesting um, museum campus you know, very large. We're also a park. We have, we're a nature preserve. We have multiple walking trails. And uh, what attracted me here to Renfrew was the fact that it it's so well preserved in situ. All of the buildings are on their original foundations. They're great vernacular examples of Pennsylvania German design, utilitarian, all, most of them limestone from the ground that oh, they're sitting cool. on. Yeah. Um, so Renfrew is basically, it was set up by Emma as um, this gift to the people of Waynesboro so that they could enjoy the stone house that she restored um, in her later life that was built by Daniel Royer in 1812. Um, So that's a museum, it's a house museum, not representing a particular time period, but it's furnished with all the things that Emma collected over her lifetime. So she was an early um, lover of, you know, colonial and early American furniture and decorative arts, but then her biggest passion was John Bell pottery. That's what Renfrew is best known for is our, we have the largest publicly displayed collection of um, Shenandoah Valley pottery by this man, John Bell. Okay. And he was here in Waynesboro, but his family was in Westminster, Maryland. They were in Hagerstown. They were out in Strasburg, Virginia. And so that um, is sort of our claim to fame is having this large collection. For me, I love material culture. I love the objects of everyday life and how those complement the built environment. And so that's kind of what Renfrew is about is showing what life was like during the early 19th century, um, both within the context of the farmstead itself and then the everyday material culture items that we have in the collection. And I think that's I, I, when you said that she wielded in 1973. I'm thinking that was early for 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 preservation and 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 collection on this scale. So that's really that's really interesting. Yeah, she was really yeah. a visionary. Um, you know, I don't think that she set out to become a preservationist. Mm-hmm. She just like me loved early buildings, yeah. loved history, and I I feel real kinship to Emma Nicodemus. She, as a little girl, the story is she came here on the handlebars of her dad's bike. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in the teens or twenties. And yeah. she told her daddy, I'm going to live in that house one day. And so she did, she, she married her husband, Edgar kind of late in life. They were in their fifties and she went about restoring this home. And she just decided after her husband passed away that this was 
what she wanted to do. She wanted to preserve this, this piece of local history. And I, you know, I just find her very inspiring, especially as a woman in preservation. You know, we, we think back to Ann Pamela Cunningham and the Mount Vernon Ladies Society as sort of being that beginning Mm -hmm. of those grandmothers of preservation. But really, you know, especially in 2020, the year of the woman, thinking Mm -hmm. about how instrumental women have been in preservation. And so I, you know, I hold Emma Nicodemus up as an example of that. Yeah, and it's it's everyday preservation. She wasn't, it, you know, that building maybe was was kept in, you know, with the, the historic fabric because she was there. And so it's not like she was out saving every building, but she saved that building, and that's important. Yeah, it's that grassroots. What's yeah. what's important to people locally on, yeah. you know, that very immediate level. Yeah, I yeah I, I agree. Um, so tell me about the activities, and I saw that you have events, and then you also rent some of your some of the buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about that. So our main core of interpretation are house tours. We're you know your typical house museum. Um, we have a visitor center that's in our converted Victorian barn. Um, it's a Pennsylvania bank barn. People come here first initially to get their tour to view our collection of bell pottery, and then they're taken on a guided tour of the museum house. Uh, We offer an hour long tour during our regular season, which is mid-April through mid-October. And so people get to go through those period rooms, see the collection, learn about the Royers. We also have, again, an amazing collection of extant outbuildings that date to the early 19th century. So we've been incorporating some of those into our tour offerings. Um, We have, a special program called Farmstead Teas and Tours where we um, have a hearty tea lunch that people can come. We can serve between 15 and 20 people in our wagon shed room, which is a converted wagon shed. Um, That's (laughs) a multi-purpose meeting space. Um, So they dine in there, they go on the tour with our docents, come back and have dessert. So it's a a fun way to incorporate food with the tour. Yes. Also something that's a little bit um, unusual for our area is we offer historic hearth cooking lessons. And that came into play when I arrived um, because that's my background with domestic life and um, living history that I picked up in my training at Greenfield Village. And that's been very popular. Um, People can cook a meal from start to finish on an open hearth. Uh, We're using our summer kitchen, which is the only relocated building on the property currently, Um, but we're looking to expand that to one of the houses that has a larger kitchen, because right now we can accommodate up to four people, but we'd like to have larger groups if we could. We can social distance better in those other kitchens. I was going to ask, are you still offering that even with 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 the COVID restrictions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had, um, I actually had a double feature a couple Fridays ago where I had a group of four in the morning and a group of three in the afternoon. Oh, and we, were really, we did really well, we were masked, um, we were social distancing and their groups, you know, I encourage people as family units or if you're very yes. close friends right. to come and yeah. do this because, you know, having four strangers in the same room probably isn't a good idea. Right. But, um, you know, we're doing our best. We've really, I mean, Renfrew Museum and Park has done a great job I think of um, continuing on with our mission-based work in the midst of COVID, yeah. um, we have this huge outdoor asset and that's really helped us. We're, that some does, of our yeah. peer institutions haven't been so lucky. We yes. can go out and spread out and we've been very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. And that's, that is definitely an asset that you have that other people might not have. So tell me um, a little bit about uh, Christmas on the farm. 
Sure. So that's one of our signature events that's held the first weekend of December. And this year it's being held on December 4th, 5th, and 6th. It's a fun family event where folks can walk back in time and experience holiday traditions over the past about 200 years. So we offer an abbreviated house tour, the, house, the museum house, Emma's 1812 uh, stone house that she restored is decorated and they're going to be experiencing multiple time periods inside the house with our um, docents that are dressed in period clothing. And then we also are offering outdoor activities, wagon ride, um, we have a warming circle, we'll have live music, we have um, traditional crafts that folks can do, we have um, a Chris Kindle market inside the wagon shed, so a lot of multiple activities that folks can engage in, all for a $10 ticket, so okay. one of the best prices in to, town. <laughs> do you have to, um, do you have to pre-purchase or can you just buy, can you just come in on the day and, and buy it? Yeah, we're allowing folks to buy at the gate. We do encourage okay. you to pre-register if you can. That's helpful to us. Folks can um, purchase a ticket online. We, we okay. have a PayPal system. Um, but you it should not be an issue if you come the day of to, um, to purchase a ticket at the gate. We have two welcome tents, one um, at either side of our property to help with distancing and getting folks in safely. Yeah. And I, I did, I, I was looking um, when I was prepping for the podcast and I was seeing that you have like, I guess it's the different crafts, like the oranges with the cloves. I, don't, I can't remember what those were called. Yeah, they're called pomanders. Pomanders, okay. Yeah. And um, they had, I was, I was, they just looked like a really fun kind of way to kind of get into the holiday season and still, you know, be, be historic and see kind of what was how, how holidays used to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of our focus is we want people to have an experience that is timeless. When they come to the property, our tagline is walk back in time, because obviously we're a park with walking trails, but you also get that experience where you feel like you're transported back in time. So we're, we're very intentional in selecting the activities that we offer to make sure that they're in alignment with that historic experience. Right. Um, so not only will folks be able to make the pomanders, they're also gonna be able to make Victorian scrap art ornaments. They'll learn about those both in the house with our interpreters and right. then be able to make their own. Pomanders, same way, those are gonna be displayed throughout the house. So they'll see them in context in the historic decorations and then be able to make their own. Um, and so we're, we're very, like I said, we're very intentional to make sure that the, his, the history of our site um, is, is respected and also that people are going to learn something because it's, right. it's easy to just go to a historic site and, you know, I mean, Renfrew, I, I guess I'm going to tell some tales here. Renfrew <laughs> in the past several years um, had become known as a destination to go and see just this incredible modern display of Christmas decorations in the historic um, house. Yeah. And that's what they had done for maybe about eight years. And so when I arrived, you know, we sat down with the board and we were talking about, you know, my vision for the property. And yeah. I thought it was very important that people come away from Christmas on the farm with an understanding of how the holiday traditions and celebrations in South Central Pennsylvania have evolved over time. Right. We are a museum. We are an educational institution. So that's kind of our goal. But folks are going to have a great time. They're going to have wonderful memories with their families and um, a lot of fun. So we're looking forward to it very much. Yeah. And I think I think sometimes organizations change and and and, and even within preservation. But I think I think it's 
oftentimes very important to get back to like the basics. And that helps people, you know, kind of stay focused on, on why you're doing what you do. Otherwise you kind of get lost in all the other stuff. Right. And, and especially with house museums, I mean, historic house museums for more than a decade, they've been saying that attendance has been dropping right. and there's been all sorts of symposia and, um, articles about what we need to do to keep house museums fresh. There was the Anarchist Guide to Historic House Museums. Right, Frank right. actually stayed overnight at Glessner House when I was working there. Okay. So, um, you know, there's in in our sub industry of historic house museums within the preservation field, um, you know, we're very aware of the fact that we need to make sure that people are engaged, that the house isn't a static experience, that it's very dynamic that um, you know, we the buildings are preserved for a reason, right. but, they're, but they're not like etched in stone or have a snow globe on top of them. And that's my, my master's thesis actually was about living history and as a means of preservation and interpreting historic structures. So I feel very strongly from a historic house museum perspective that you've got to keep it relevant and dynamic and interesting and change it up. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that that's happening. Like, I think there's a broadening of the stories that we tell and, and being more inclusive. And I think that helps too, because I Absolutely. think if, if everybody feels like they're part of the history, then they're, they're more likely to engage. Because, you know, <laughs> there's some amazing stuff going on with, yeah. with these narratives and um, people are being creative. And I yeah. think the discussions that we're having just broadly as a nation right yes. now are really influencing what we're doing in the museum field and the preservation field. And it's just a very exciting time in our industry right now, I yeah. think. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, that kind of leads me to my to my next question. Um, what um, trends or challenges do you see in preservation from your, your kind of corner of the world? Well, I think always relevance, you know, we're in, we're in a situation where people live most of their lives online right now, getting folks out of the house, um, on site, I think is really important. And with COVID, obviously, that's one right. of our biggest challenges. Um, so we we have been just like our peer institutions, integrating virtual programming so that people can experience our site um, and our historic buildings uh, from online, from the comfort of their homes. But there is nothing like coming and experiencing the space and um, the visual uh, integrity of a historic structure. So I think that's a challenge that our industry is going to face here moving forward is right. how do we make sure that people are getting to experience the extant buildings in the way that they were meant to be experienced. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think that that's been a challenge, but I think it's just makes it a little bit harder now. Like it's just another layer of, you know, getting people to, to get out. Um, so, and I know we've talked about the Christmas on the farm. Is that, would you like to promote that again or more? Do you want to tell, do you want to um, remind us of the dates and things? Sure. So Renfrew Museum and Parks Christmas on the Farm is Friday, December 4th, Saturday, December 5th, and Sunday, December 6th, 2020. Um, you can find information about our program at renfrewmuseum.org slash Christmas or give us a call at the office at 717-762-4723. We're very excited about the uh, possibility of reaching new audiences. And thank you for giving us this opportunity, Danielle. Uh, you're you're welcome. My, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that Laura found you. Um, 
because we were kind of talking about what we wanted to do because we try to stay kind of holiday themed, you know, as, if we can. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that she found your, but I think I, I'm going to try and, and come over. I think it would be, it would be good. And I've never, I've never visited the site. So usually doing the podcast, I find things that I didn't know that were local that like, <laughs> now it's my excuse to go, go do it. So thank you very much for, for your time. I appreciate it. And um, I, I look forward to, to coming over to the um, Christmas on the farm. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.